Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, today as we are, well, as the Jews in our community are gearing up for the high holy days in September, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I am so honored and excited to invite two um, very extraordinary, enthusiastic, and knowledgeable women to the podcast today. So today I'm welcoming a musician, Sarah Orowesti, and a chef, Susan Barokas. Now these two women share a unique connection, not only as Sephardic Jews, but also they trace their roots back to the same Macedonian town, one of the largest Macedonian towns in um, history. But sadly, during the Holocaust, nearly the entire population of their town was lost. A shocking 98% of the town was exterminated. Another thing that Sarah and Susan have in common is they are both absolutely passionate about preserving Sephardic culture. They are researchers and curators delving deep into historical records, oral traditions, and stories. And together, they are on a mission to share this rich heritage with all of us. But what makes their Savor project really unique, uh, it's unlike anything I've, I've ever come across and truly remarkable, is that they share this passion differently. So uh, as I mentioned, Sarah is an is a musician, and the Savor Project is in part an album filled with Sephardic songs, all actually about food and all sung in the Ladino language. The Sephora Project at the same time is also a collection of recipes that go hand in hand with each song. And then on top of that, they have um, created and again curated videos featuring female chefs and home cooks who demonstrate how to make these recipes, all while discussing their own personal connection to food and Sephardic culture. So as I said, this is a really unique project um, created and collaborated on by two very, again, unique women that I am so honored to have on the podcast today. I am just thrilled to share our conversation with you. I learned so much uh, that I didn't know, and um, I'm thanking them for coming on, and I am thanking you for being here and listening. And um, Sarah, can you hear me as well? I can. Can you hear me? I can. Yes, your beautiful voice. <laughs> it's a speaking voice this time. How are you? I am well, thank you. Um, I actually couldn't be better. I am in Hawaii. So, <gasps> Oh, that's excellent. What island are you on? Um, right now I'm in Kauai. Kauai. Okay. Oh, awesome. We went to Maui um, two, three summers ago. Um, yeah. yeah, but I keep hearing... Kauai, we really actually missed out not going there. Well, I'll take it in for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, let's, if we can, just start with um, each of you briefly introducing yourselves. And I think we can already um, tell the difference in voices, but if we can just start to distinguish you guys, that would be great. So my name is Sarah Arrowesti. Like an arrow and then add an S and a T at the end. 
That is so helpful. <laughs> I'm always having to reach out um, afterwards while I record the intro and outro and say, can you just pronounce your last name for me again? So that's so helpful. Aroesti. That's a great way of explaining it. Thank you. Susan, how about you? Hi. So my name is Susan Barokas. Barokas. Okay. Right. It's the long O. It throws people. I, yes, I would have been wrong on that. Yes. <laughs> No worries. Okay. So um, people will hear a little bit about the Saver Project um, in the introduction. So if you can each Wait, just tell me. Out, it's Savor. Savor. Yes. Yeah. It's the Spanish and Ladino pronunciation, Savor, which means taste or flavor. Excellent. Okay. And this is Susan that's telling me this, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. So who, this is actually a great time to just ask uh, two things. Who chose the name of this project and how did you, how did you arrive at it? Sure. So I chose the name because I knew I was going to name my music album Savor. So it started with the music. Okay. Um, do, you want, do you want me to get into the whole background of how it started now, or should we save that? You know what? Let's, let's go for it. We're here. So let's go for it. Um, <laughs> so I have been recording Ladino music, both traditional and contemporary music, um, my own compositions for over 20 years. Wow. And I'm very interested in, um, in concept albums. So um, over that 20 year span, I have um, done everything from a, a children's album to a feminist rock homage to a 15th century Sephardic heroine. Um, wow. Um, a holiday album to a dedication to a tiny little um, extinct Jewish community in the Balkans. So I'm very wow. interested in really diving into a very specific topic. And over the course of that first year of the pandemic, when everybody was in their kitchens, mostly making sourdough starters, um, I was um, diving into this incredible treasure trove of recipes that had been handed down to me in my family from um, a small town that I actually share in common with Susan. Um, oh, wow. Grandfather and her grandmother are from a town called Monastir. Uh, today it is called Bitola and it is in North Macedonia. But at the time that our families lived there, um, it was all part of the Ottoman Empire. And Susan will get much more into um the Ottoman Empire and all the influences that um, that that turned up in the in the food, mm. and I'll talk about it in the music. But um, the recipes uh, made me, as a musician, want to sing along. <laughs> wow, was, was cooking, and um, what I quickly found was that a lot of the music that I was drawn to while I was exploring this food were actually songs about food. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> um, so, you know, you can um, eat delicious Sephardic food and you can listen to beautiful Sephardic music, but to actually combine the two and to be um, so inhaling the food while singing about that food um, mm. was something that I was really interested in exploring how we touch upon all of those senses to get a much more enduring, complete 
um, literal taste of, of this culture. And I found that there was just, there was so much music who knew mm-hmm. <laughs> really specific music, not just about, you know, food in general, but specific, yes. how, you know, seven yes. prepare an eggplant or how to, uh, how to roll a grape leaf, how to knead the bread dough. I mean, these were very, very specific songs that, and each one had a story and that's ultimately yes. What draws me to all of my music is that the storytelling through Ladino song opens up a whole world into Sephardic culture. You can learn so much about a people, about the history, um, uh, about the geography too. I mean, there's just so, so much richness um, in in these stories. And Mm. uh, I knew as I was developing the album that I wanted to create this taste, this flavor, this savour, and I organized it as a menu. So Mm -hmm. um, we have appetizers, main dishes, and desserts. Mm -hmm. And as the project was forming in my mind, I realized, okay, well, you can't just listen to the music. That's a lot <laughs> you need the food. And so I reached out to Susan, who I had met over a Shabbat dinner several mm-hmm. years earlier. And we bonded very quickly because of this, um, among many things, but uh, yeah. <laughs> our shared heritage in Monastir. And I said, Susan, I've got this crazy idea. You know, what do you think about helping to, um, to curate the food portion of, of Savor so that um, the food items I was singing about mm-hmm. in the songs could be actually paired with the food, the recipes. And that's where Susan came in. Yes. It's, it's just a tremendous, unique concept, amazingly well executed. And I was I was shocked and stunned, like you said, by the specificity of the dishes mentioned in these songs and the range of emotions um, that food and these dishes could bring forth. Um, Just just amazing. So, Susan, when you heard when Sarah reached out to you, what was your what was your thought and how did you um, how did you join the project and how did you add to it? Great. Well, yeah, I was immediately intrigued. You know, Mm. this is during COVID. So Mm -hmm. all of the whole project was really created by Sarah and I over phone, Mm. WhatsApp, Zoom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We didn't didn't meet until a year later. Wow. After we had started, you know, in person. But it's, um, I was so intrigued and, you know, realized, and of course I knew uh, Sephardic music. And I also obviously knew food. And then for us, when we dived into these connections, it was just this like spark Mm -hmm. of like, wow, this is so connected. First of all, the food Mm -hmm. and the music, and it says so much together about Mm -hmm. Sephardic culture and history. But also the other thing that I find so interesting, and I think Sarah too, is it's really women. Yeah. Women who created this music, women who carried the recipes out of Spain. It's not like they were written recipe books. Right. You know, they carried the the and taught these traditions of both the music and the food, generation to generation, passing it woman to woman. Yeah. So that also was really fascinating. And that's why um when we started to look at chefs, it was like they have to all be women. I mean, mm. they don't even have to all necessarily be Sephardic mm-hmm. as long as they uh, promote 
and mm. preserve Sephardic culture and recipes. Mm-hmm. But they do need to be women because mm. that's who has carried this tradition forward. Mm. Well, and I also think it seems so fitting that this um, project was collaborative because uh, community was such an essential part, I think, um, of of your culture, really of any culture. And um, like you said, the community of women together, supporting each other, um, upholding each other, carrying one another's burdens, um, it seems that it wouldn't have been right to do this project uh, even if one or both of you could contribute both things, it feels like it wouldn't be right to do it in a way that was um, independent, that wasn't collaborative. Mm. Yeah. A yeah. lot of our efforts are really about building community. We want mm. this to go outwards. For such a long time, um, Sephardic culture has been somewhat insular. Um mm have, I mean, it's helped preserve the culture in many ways that we've sort of kept it to ourselves. But, you know, now we know what a gem the food and the music <laughs> and, and, and we, we want to spread, you know, spread the wealth, spread this joy. Mm-hmm. And um, the only way we can do that is by creating community and, and, um, and moving it outwards. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for bringing us into your community. Um, first with this project, and then also, today um, by talking to me. And I, there's so many ways that I need to be educated. So let's let's start on that. So I, I guess when I ask about Sephardic culture, um, for me, I guess I start from a reference point of, you know, I, I grew up in an area where many of my friends were um, Ashkenazi Jews. We, we had off school for um, Jewish holidays. So my reference point is Ashkenazi Jews. And my, my question, I guess, is at what point did the, did the storylines of Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews and the lineages, I suppose. Um, when did that, when did they start to diverge? When did these two different cultures begin to um to shape themselves? And in what ways do they differ? And in what ways, I mean, obviously you are all um Jews, which is again like a just a one of the first values I think of when I think of um the many Jews that I've been blessed to be friends with, you know, in in my life is one of the very um, highest values is community, family and community. So in what ways do you differ and in what ways do you um, relate to one another? So that's a lot of questions wrapped into one. (laughs) How long do you have, Becky? Well, I just want to dive in really quickly Mm. with a a fact because a lot Mm. of people talk about how what they know, especially in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, what they know about Jewish culture is is Ashkenazic. And that mm-hmm. is really because of the numbers. And if we just mm-hmm. base it in this, we take away any judgment, mm. you know, and that is that between about 1890 and 1920, you have this huge influx of, of immigrants into the U.S. Mm-hmm. Of those approximately, I don't know, 20 million or something like that immigrants, Two million were Eastern European Jews. Okay. Mm. And you can't even guess the number is so small compared of that number and of the number of immigrants, about 30 to 40,000 were Jews that at the time were called Oriental Mm. when they got to the country. 
And that means that they were a large part from the Ottoman Empire, but they were also from other countries. They were from Persia and they were from, uh, you know, Syria, Yemen, you know, countries that are part, they may have been living in as Jews for 2,500 years, their family. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that was all lumped together into anyone who was not Ashkenazic. Mm-hmm. And that's such a small number. So yeah, not a big surprise. Less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Slightly not, more than 1%. Yeah. Right. So not a big surprise that what we know is, you know, bagels and brisket and, mm. and instead of, you know, bareka. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And all of the Sephardic and now we're part of what I think Sarah and I and many other people are dedicated to right now is being able to present, educate, and um, preserve this other mm-hmm. Jewish, these other Jewish cultures. Mm-hmm. And that really speaks to the diversity of Jews having lived literally in all over the world. Right. So two questions, follow up questions. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, go ahead. But, you know, I was going to say back to your question about history, but go ahead. That's in the U.S., of course. But um, worldwide, are the populations of Ashkenazi and Sephardic similar? And also, are those only the only two kind of distinctions between Jews? Mm -hmm. And then, yes, you mentioned 2,500 years ago. So tell us what happened then and how this all started to, um, yeah, diverge. Well, I can pop in here to say that the Jewish presence in um, in Sephirad, that's where we get the word Sephardic. It is literally oh. the Hebrew word for Spain. Oh. So that's where it comes from. Okay. And um, Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, um, there are records that we, we had been there since, you know, as early as 300 AD. Um, but the oh, no. main 300 BCE. Mm-hmm. Before Sorry. the turn, yeah, yeah, um, and um, there are first. I should say there are so many different types of Jews. We're mm-hmm. so used to classifying them as Sephardic and Ashkenazi, but in fact, there are so many others. There's Mizrahi. There's Romani Oat. There, I mean, there are just mm-hmm. so many, and those terms are very modern terms. We never call mm-hmm. ourselves that those are even like 20th century construction. Mm -hmm. Um, And for example, in other places in the world, they don't um, separate us like that. Like in Israel, Mm -hmm. those terms are used very, very differently. So, Mm -hmm. um, but to make this as simple as possible, Mm -hmm. um, the real main difference is um, started off geographically. So Mm -hmm. that the um, Ashkenaz was mostly um, Eastern Europe and Sephirad, being the Hebrew word for Spain, were um, was a term used for Jews who originated in the Iberian Peninsula. So, if we just mm-hmm. start there between those two terms, mm-hmm. um, it was a it was a geographic difference of how they um, of, of where the Jews lived. But because of geography, they developed their own customs. So, one of the major differences is language. So. Mm-hmm. And to think of Ashkenazi Jews, um, many spoke or still speak Yiddish. Mm. 
Whereas Judeo-Spanish, otherwise known as Ladino, is the language, the, there are many languages, but it was the most common language spoken by the Jews who were exiled from Spain in 1492. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I actually just want to d- dive in for a minute because you had asked when it diverged, Becky. Yes. And I think that, you know, to remember that the Jews spread out with yes. the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as the as the Romans also spread or took slaves back to Rome, took um started trade routes or you know with people from um the the land that is now Israel and the and that mm-hmm. whole part of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So the Jews spread out and that's how they ended up in Spain that long ago in mm-hmm. Iberia. Mm-hmm. That long ago, and the Romaniote Jews that Sarah referenced, you know, are the Jews that were came to what is Italy and Greece mm. with the Romans, which is why they're Romaniote Jews, and mm-hmm. they don't speak Ladino. Um, they never did or Yiddish never to Spain or Yiddish. That's right. Mm-hmm. They have their own. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to point out that, you know, this whole geographic thing Mm -hmm. has to do with where people moved. Right. So. Which had to do with the dispersal of the Roman Empire. The dispersal of the Roman Empire and trade routes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are the two things. So Mm -hmm. anyway, Sarah, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's this, it, it's all related so that, you know, depending on where you live, then of course you would have cultural differences beyond just language, but, um, you know, your, your food was influenced by your region and by your neighbors mm-hmm. as was your music and your rhythms and your instrumentation. So it's all related to you know, where these migrations were and how that changed the way you expressed your, your Jewish culture. So, mm-hmm. um, there are so many specific differences between, again, not just Sephardi and Ashkenazi, but all of these different groups of, of, of Jews. But the main thing that unites us is that we're all Jewish, no matter how you look right. at it. Um, right. And certain elements, if you go back to, you know, very traditional um, Judaism, there are certain, you know, core elements of liturgy and observance that um, unites Jews across you know, across boundaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Susan? Um, no, I think, well, the only thing I would say is that we tend to lump everyone who is not Ashkenazic heritage mm-hmm. as Sephardic. And Sarah brings up really important points about there are so many different I don't want to say kinds of Jews in in terms of typing people, but so many Jews that come from many different places. Mm. You know, she mentioned like there's Maghrebi and Maghrebi is North Africa, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mizrahi, which are kind of centered around like Persia, Iraq, Iran, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's kind of does a disservice Mm -hmm. to all these beautiful cultures Mm. and histories to say, well, you're either Ashkenazic or Sephardic. Right. Mm. right. And that's, unfortunately, you know, we tend to, you know, simplify things in our lives as much as we can. And that oversimplification, I think, is very dangerous in terms of maintaining 
these histories and these beautiful, beautiful cultures and the Mm. food and the music that go with them, Mm. as well as religious observance, because we do have those observance, you know, the core of Judaism in common, and yet the melodies are different. Mm. The the certain prayers might be different. There are Mm. some differences that have developed in each community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mm, Yeah, which I think for, um, you know, uh, so I'm I'm not Jewish, um, I'm Christian, but for me, um, God is, you know, encompasses all in all. Um, He is like a God of all people, all nations, all tribes. And so to me, if a religion can um, relate to all these different cultures, that is, I think, to me, that speaks to um, to God and even like his character, um, that the religion doesn't need to be married to one particular culture. It can be married to global mm-hmm. cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask in terms of um, how these different, not just Ashkenazi and Sephardic, but the others that you mentioned as well, how they how their stories um, relate to each other. One thing, um, one thing. So, of course, um, for Ashkenazi Jews in the U.S., um, a big part of their identity is remembering um, the Holocaust, remembering the persecution, suffering, and oppression that they endured, um, not just through the Holocaust, but for centuries before. Um, and in many ways when they arrived in the U.S. And I noticed um, in the album, in the songs, I actually think you lead off with a song that's about um, oppression and persecution, if I'm right. The um, Grapevine, Grape Leaf song. Leaf song. And well, there's a little bit of oppression within the... <laughs> What's that? Say that again. It's a little bit... Um, I mean, it's definitely... I think it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek... Um, mm song. Um, we can get into that story a little bit more specifically, but if anything, it's oppression from within the own community. Mm, yes. Properly grape leaf. And so she wasn't considered fully Jewish. (laughs) Yes. Right. So, you know, you have to think about like the, for Sephardim, You have two inquisitions in Spain. Well, that's what I was getting at is, do you feel that that's a, um, that's a commonality that Jews around the world um, have shared? Or do you feel like maybe that's even just a more, um, a more global commonality among people groups around the world? And it's not something that you um, necessarily think identifies you as Jews. Does that question make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think... Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm going to say something controversial, but um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think migration and and oppression, you know, certainly so many cultures can, can relate. So in many ways, an absolute universal theme and for Jews in particular, you know, with the Holocaust and with um, several different exiles uh, in Mm -hmm. our history um, resonates, you know, very, very clearly with, with our Jewish identity. um, And many of our holidays are actually based specifically on and retelling, but so that's sort of a universal truth. Um, However, I would say much more specifically that the inquisition is something that even within our own Jewish population, mm. um, 
is not fully recognized as having the great impact that it has had on on Sephardic culture, mm. meaning um, there is a um, uh, you know, the study of epigenetics, right? That um, trauma is passed down through yeah. mm-hmm. the inquisition um, in many ways and rightfully so, um, you know, has been overshadowed by more recent mm. uh, horrors um, and, and traumas like the, like the Holocaust, but the inquisition before, let's say the Holocaust for Jews was the, you know, was the most major um uh, event to completely change the demography of the Jewish people. And we don't talk about it <laughs> enough. Mm. And so, um, I mean, it is, it is part of our, our DNA for me and Susan mm. and so many other Sephardic Jews. It's something that is so ingrained in our culture and in our, and in our, you know, un- conscious psyches um, that um, pervades us in a way that I don't think um, other Jews like Ashkenazi Jews can fully understand and appreciate. Um, That's not to say that they don't have their own horrors. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, please. I was just going to say two things. One is what Sarah's saying is so true about the change uh, in just what Judaism and Jews were because you have to realize that the Iberian Peninsula was the center of Jewish life. There were more Jews living there in the Middle Ages than any place else. It was this huge concentration. And so, you know, you probably had about half a million is the are the estimates, something like that, I think. Mm. And then you say, okay, you all, first there were pogroms for over 100 years. There were right. killings, there were tortures, there was all kinds of stuff before right. the Inquisition was ever even official. Yeah. And then you say, oh, um, so then what happens? Everyone leaves or they become secret Jews. And that's a whole other topic. Mm. You know, so like Sarah said, it totally changed what the face, you know, that's all the cultural touch points, uh, the history all changed. Mm. The other thing is the Holocaust. And here I'm going to say something, I think a little controversial, Mm. but the Holocaust very often is viewed as an Ashkenazic event. Mm. Mm -hmm. The truth is. Mm-hmm. That there was a higher percentage, even though the numbers are lower, a higher percentage of Sephardic Jews were killed mm-hmm. than Ashkenazic Jews. Mm-hmm. White whole communities mm-hmm. wiped out, mm-hmm. gone. And our town where we're from, Monastir, actually had the highest percentage. Ninety-eight percent of the Jewish population, which was all Sephardic, um, they were exterminated. Ninety-eight percent. I mean, that's an entire. Yeah. The entire wiped off the face of the earth in an instant. So, yeah. And so it's not to be competitive, but it's just to recognize that there is broader, um, you know, this whole idea of the Holocaust as being part of you know, Jewish identity, you know, is so mm-hmm. tied to it. And that, that for me, no, you know, Jewish identity, that's something that's happened similar as horrible mm-hmm. as it was but we've had these kinds of persecutions and mm. no one owns them. If you mm. know what I mean. And I think it's important that we recognize that um, many 
Jews and non-Jews also, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, there were just so many people, you we can't even begin to comprehend it. Yes. So we need to understand as much as we can. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I just also want to add one last thing to that, which is mm. that some people think the Inquisition was one year, was 1492. Mm. <laughs> um, and that was just, you know, the the decree of, uh, of expulsion from Spain, but then it moved to Portugal, then it moved all over Europe. So it, it started bef- well before, as Susan mentioned, with these um, pogroms and mm. uh, well before 1492 and continued well, after, in fact, the last person who was um, killed by an auto de fe, like you know, being burned by fire, uh, essentially at the stake for being Jewish, was in Mexico City in, 18, I think it was 1867. I mean, it was fairly in recent history um, wow. so right. for hundreds of years. Um, it was not just a one-year event. And so it was, It we, we've always sort of been watching our, our backs and, and um, mm-hmm. it's been so much a part of our of our culture and it has had lasting effects um for generations since mm-hmm. i appreciate that i appreciate all of those thoughts thank you great i guess we'll go ahead and move back a little bit more into your um individual story so sarah for you particularly um you said you've been making albums for 20 years. And I suspect you've been singing a lot longer than that. So tell me about how kind of the seeds for um, your love of music were planted and who watered them and what was music like in your home um, growing up? Sure. Um, I, I always knew I was um, going to be a musician of some sort. Um, I grew up with very, very Western classical music. I studied Mm. opera very seriously from, uh, from, you know, when I was 13 years old, essentially. Um, And I was on the path towards an opera career. Mm. And um, that being said, I made a, 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 a decision to not go to conservatory for college. I, I did want um, a sort of a more rounded education. Mm-hmm. I went to Yale where I did a joint program with um, the Yale School of Music. So mm-hmm. um, music was was my life uh, growing up. And in college, my um, junior year, I was singing for a summer program in Israel. It's the, uh, like the summer program it was a feeding ground for the Tel Aviv Opera. It's called mm-hmm. the Israel Vocal Arts Institute. And up until that point, really my whole musical existence was, like I said, Western classical music. That being said, I, I knew I came from this proud Sephardic stock. Music was a very big part of my family. Um, not so much, though, with Sephardic music. Um mm-hmm. So for holidays, the gatherings that we had were heavily influenced by um, Sephardic stories, Sephardic food, but not as much with Sephardic music. And I always felt like I was missing something. And I always tell people that my bat mitzvah when I was 13 years old was my Mm -hmm. first solo performance because I got (laughs) one song, a single song, (laughs) you know, to show off my Sephardic culture. And it was such a proud, proud moment for me. Um, But beyond that, I heard snippets of Ladino song, um, but it was not part of my musical repertoire at Mm. all. So that when I was singing at the Tel Aviv, um, the Vocal Arts Institute, 
I mean, I, it was, it must've been serendipity because I was paired with my opera coach, the late great Nico Castell, who was an incredible singer in his own right, but he was also um, a coach at the Metropolitan Opera mm. in New York. And he just happened to share my Sephardic heritage and wow. it was um, considered at the time, one of the world's um, sort of leading uh, singers of Ladino music. He was one of the first to publish um, sort of a popular Ladino songbook, the Nico Castell songbook, Ladino songbook. And um, it, I mean, like, I couldn't believe my luck. Wow. <laughs> um, in between our opera coachings, we would steal away um, you know, some time here and there for him to teach me the traditional, some traditional wow. Ladino songs. And very quickly, I just, I fell in love with the music. Mm -hmm. And um, to the point where I came back to America and did a series of opera recitals, and I included in the recitals a portion, a section of Ladino music. And um, without fail, this is not an exaggeration, um, after every performance, audience members would come up to me and tell me that the Ladino section was their favorite part. And, you know, it took me some time to realize it, but then I thought, oh my gosh, it's my favorite part too, because I must have been singing the music differently. Mm. No Mozart, I love Mozart. Um, and you know, the other great white male European mm. composers. But um you know, the the Ladino music must have been reaching my soul in a different way that I conveyed it outwards. Um mm in a, in a way that's, you know, indescribable. Um, and I, it took several years. It wasn't, you know, that I woke up overnight and, and, and decided, Oh, I'm going to switch careers. Mm. <laughs> it was, it was a process, but eventually, um, you know, there was some nine 11, uh, mm. mm-hmm. I realized that my true, um, my true passion, if I was going to continue doing music was, um, to concentrate on, on Ladino song. Mm. So two questions, um, not so much about history, but more about the, um, the act of preserve preservation of preserving history, I guess. But mm-hmm. one, can you tell me a little bit about the language of Ladino and, um, two, how, how did your, um, your coach and then later you, unearth these Ladino songs where they, you know, you said he published one of the first books um, of Ladino music. So how had these carried along through the years? Where did he find them? And where do you find yours? Like when you're putting together a project like this? Sure. Uh, when I started studying with Nico Castell, um, we used his songbook um, as the jumping off point. So um, it wasn't that he was the first to create a songbook. Certainly there mm. were records of songs well, well before his, but I would say his in America was the mm. you know, one of the first sort of popularized songbook. So certainly ethnomusicologists, of which there are many in this field, um, mm-hmm. have been preserving music, you know, since the 1920s um, on paper. Um, but his, through, I, I believe it was Terra Publications, was one of the first um, sort of widely distributed, at least in America, Ladino songbooks. So we'll, we'll say that. Um, okay. 
So I used, we used his songbook as a jumping off point. And I can't tell you exactly where he found his songs, but um, he, as uh, he sort of moonlighted as a cantor and um, he was from South America. And I think, you know, he had probably collected songs along the way from his family. Um, and I don't want to say it was like a top 10 <laughs> book, but he certainly, his songbook had more, I would say, the songs that um, are more popularized today. What we like to say in the Ladino music world, or we'd like to dissuade people from, um, is sort of using this word traditional or authentic because um, songs in the Ladino repertoire, it's like a great game of telephone. Mm-hmm. It was an oral tradition for hundreds of years. Um, really, the print. Um, sort of casual printing of Ladino, the language and the music really didn't happen until the 20th century. Mm. Um, it was an oral tradition prior to that, except for, um, you know, synagogal, um, you know, liturgical books. Mm. But um, because it was an oral tradition, one community would have a version of a song and it would travel, you know, with a cousin to another town right. and they change a word here or there or a melody here or there and you change an instrument depending on um, you know who their musical neighbor was and it would sort of travel and traverse across the yeah. Mediterranean basin and the Balkans so um, every community had sort of their own version of a song and it's one of the things that makes it so beautiful that you could have mm-hmm. the same song in 20 different ways um, so there really isn't one pure, one traditional version of a song. Um, that's a really important point to make. But I would say that his songbook, um, like many Ladino songbooks, include um, songs that are uh, sort of more well known than others. So mm. uh, to any Ladino, to anybody who's familiar with Ladino music, you know, certain songs that I could throw out, like Adio Querida, Los Bilbilicos, even if you don't sing those songs yourself, you recognize these names, Avrama Vino. These are just songs that have become widely spread. Mm. Um, so his songbook had a lot of those, and it was a great starting, you know, starting point for me. Mm. Um and I'd say for the first 10 years of my career, I concentrated on those types of songs, more traditional. Um, we call them canticas. Those are folk songs. Mm. Um, there are also romances, which are more epic um, mm. songs that tell these, you know, sweeping stories mm. that can be long. Um, a lot of them reference medieval history and saga yeah. world history. Um uh, but I mostly was interested in the the folk songs, the cantigas, and I um, was a little bit, um, I wouldn't say racy, <laughs> but because I was so young when I started my career, um, I was known as taking certain um, leaps and risks that um, some other, I'd say more traditional musicians weren't doing. So I would reinterpret or rather interpret um, the songs from the standpoint of where I was at the time. I was a young single woman in her twenties living in Mm. New York. So, you know, if I saw a song about heartbreak, um, Mm. which there are many (laughs) in Latino repertoire, um, I would, you know, make it so that not only, you know, could I internalize and feel the song in my own way, but also in a way that was relatable, I thought to my, my peers. So I, I added some rock and roll because I, 
I have always been very honest that I did not grow up in monastery. I did not grow mm-hmm. up in the Balkans or in a Ladino speaking. Mm-hmm. I grew up in America. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I grew up with good old American rock and roll. So um, my musical influences were very much in my music in that, in that first 10 years. So um, I was interpreting this music in my own way. And I had um, some fans and I certainly had a lot of critics <laughs> in the Sephardic community. Sephardic community, correct. Mm. But um, I would say after you know eight albums now, um, you really can not only hear my musical development, but you can hear all the different stages of my life. So, you know, it starts off with this chip on my shoulder being this single girl. Mm. And next album, I think I probably met my now husband and my songs were more romantic. And then I got pregnant and I had a children's album. And then, you know, you could sort of see the progression. Yeah. Like through through my albums, but about ten years ago, um, I decided to switch from interpreting this more traditional music, and I started composing my own. And I realized, you know, I knew enough Ladino. I had learned it at that by that point, and I had enough um, that I wanted to say, enough poetry in my own head um, that I decided to to write my own music. And so for the last 10 years, I've mostly become known as one of the few contemporary composers of Ladino music. So all my albums since then have been um, mostly original, except Savor. I'll come back to Savor, which is to say that um, uh, one of the things I love about the traditional music is doing the research um, mm-hmm. and finding these sources, which, you know, finding them in and of itself, like that's a whole story too. Um, the people that you meet along the way um, who sing these songs to you. And I have a, a, um, a cousin, one of the 2% who survived in mm. Monastir. Um, she's turning 106 this wow. fall. And, you know, the songs that she passes down to me are, you know, are treasures and just sitting with her and hearing her singing. Um, So I love doing the research and I do a lot through um, the sound archives um, in Israel. There's an incredible national archive um, and and research music um, from ethnomusicologists who were in the field, you know, even a hundred years ago. Um, Wow. I love digging around and interviewing people. And so for this project, um, almost all of the songs were traditional songs that I heavily, heavily researched and curated, um, except for one song, which is contemporary. It's by the late um, incredible Flory Jagoda, who is really credited with bringing Ladino music to America. Um, mm, okay. He survived the war. Um from Sarajevo and um, brought Ladino music here. And um, if anybody knows anything about Ladino music, they probably know a Hanukkah song called Ocho Candelicas, which is not a traditional song. She wrote it in the 1980s and it has Mm. become part of the Hanukkah song canon. (laughs) Um, But both Susan and I love and admired um, Flory very much. And and, um, her song is especially poignant on, on this album. Wow. Wow. That's like you said, such a treasure to have um, those sound archives. That's incredible. I didn't know those existed. Yeah. Mm. Susan, um, I don't know about you, but when Sarah was explaining the way that these melodies um, changed and altered and adjusted a little bit, 
I mean, I was thinking about recipes and food yep. and what happens with that. Is that, is that what you say, um, similar to what's happened to Sephardic cuisine along the course of history? Oh, absolutely. It's also been an oral tradition. Mm. Um, the food and the recipes and like the music. And so, yeah, when you say, quote unquote, authentic, mm-hmm. that really doesn't have meaning um, right. that you can't apply it. And also, you know, even traditional, as Sarah was saying, you know, based on your country, your community, right. your family, right, right. you know, tastes and dislikes. There are, of course, threads throughout. But yes, yes. you will find any one dish will have many, many interpretations, including something like, you know, we say domales, you know, or domas, stuffed Mm. grape leaves. Well, it's not really just stuffed grape leaves, first of all. And second of all, I make them very lemony because Mm. that is the influence of my uh, monastelier kind of grandmother, Mm -hmm. which is more the Greek influence within the Ottoman Empire. But if you go, you know, the Turks make them don't use as much lemon. They use Mm -hmm. spices and sometimes they'll put uh, pine nuts and currants into them, which Mm -hmm. my family would never do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. Yes, I've had many guests who have said, you know, all you can really say is it's authentic to my family or it's traditional to the way we did it. And um, maybe you can extend that out a little bit to a micro community. But really, even within a community, you're going to have so many variations on um, Mm. on a recipe. So I want to get to your personal story in a moment. But as long as we're talking about this, just the um, what did Sarah say? The giant game of telephone that is Ladino. Music and I think is all recipes. Tell us about this recipe that you um, chose to share with us because this is definitely a giant game of telephone type of recipe. Oh, it so is. Well, mm. so you know this this dish makes use of some of the ingredients that were so identified with the Jews of Spain mm. that they actually appear in inquisition laws and testimony wow aside from the women carrying the recipes and the food traditions our Mm. second greatest source of knowledge about what the jews of iberia ate is inquisition testimony literally dishes you you know your neighbor smells onions cooking from your house you must be jewish yeah wow even if you're a converso or a secret jew who has professed to have converted, if you were cooking with onions or leeks or garlic, then you were still tied to your Jewish tradition and you could be arrested, et cetera, by that's incredible. That's incredible. Wow. So I I, I forgot to ask, sorry. So for people listening, they will not necessarily yet, except for in a tiny introduction, have heard um about the recipe. So can you briefly, sorry, I should have asked this first, just say the name of the recipe and kind of what, um, what, what it is just explain the dish a little bit. Sure. Well, the recipe is garlic soup. So as we would say now, and, um, uh, in Ladino was pronounced ajo. Ah. Which is pronounced. Oh, yeah. Ija. Instead of Iha, like daughter. So, yeah. Um, so, anyway, it's garlic soup. 
And garlic soup is um, very often identified with Spain. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, it was something that the Jews would have cooked, Mm -hmm. not the Christians back in the medieval days, because um, the alliums like uh, leeks, onions, garlic, chives, chives, all those alliums were grown in those kitchen gardens of the Jewish families, Mm. but they were not eaten by Christians. They were considered lowly food of the poor and Jews, along with things like eggplant, Mm. when that did come to Spain. And um, so it's very interesting to think about this dish. The Spanish um, leek soup that's made most often now mm-hmm. is usually tomato based. Mine mm-hmm. is not. Again, here we go. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. This yep. is such a great okay. Mine is not tomato based. It's it's uh, either veggie broth or chicken broth based. Mm-hmm. But it started out with um, my family when, growing up. My mother, first of all, I'm the product of a mixed marriage, as that used to be called an Ashkenazic mom and a Sephardic father. Ah, so I okay. grew up cooking both. And luckily, because I we I grew up in Denver, we did mm-hmm. not have a Sephardic community or around us or any of that. Mm-hmm. But my father cooked, which was very unusual that he would really go beyond the barbecue for his dad <laughs> in the 50s and 60s. And he not only was he an amazing barbecuer. <laughs> and experimental, but he loved to cook. Wow. And so that's who I learned to cook from. Oh. So, yeah. And so even though I should say that's who I learned to cook the Sephardic food from and other ethnic foods beyond Ashkenazic. So my mother, and for the years that my little Russian grandmother lived with us, mm. she also would make wonderful Ashkenazic food. So I learned to make, you know, uh, chicken soup and all those one chopped liver, mm. you know, I can make schmaltz with the best of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, the truth is that my heart belongs and did even then to Sephardic culture and food. Mm. So we would, for instance, my father would always like throw some garlic into the chicken soup. Mm. Like who was having matzo ball soup with garlic in it? (laughs) But even only saw a few. Then Mm. my family took a vacation when I was Mm -hmm. 16 years old. We took a driving vacation in Mexico. Mm. And honestly, we were in Guaymas, which was a very small kind of beachy town back in in the 60s. Mm. And um, we had found this little teeny restaurant with um, this Sopa de ajo, garlic mm. soup. Wow. Oh my God. We became addicted. We went back to this restaurant every night. And this is <laughs> my, that and, and carne asada, the, the broiled meat and the oh, fish. Yeah, wow. it was like amazing. This little hole in the wall. What and a it meal. Was, mm. Mm, it was unbelievable. So um, this soup became like my approximation as close as I could of that soup because mm. I loved it. Now, mm. The thing that wasn't in that soup, it didn't use leeks and mm-hmm. it didn't use the greens. Mm. Is so that why, because they're not common in Mexico or it just didn't happen to? Um, I think they just didn't happen to. It was more of a clear broth mm. uh, with some rice in it. 
Mm. and um, not the greens. And I don't know if leeks even were down there. I don't know about that, if there was leeks around, but it was onions that was Mm. used. So if you, the fast forward, um, as I was really thinking about Sephardic food, first of all, I guess I should back up and say that I learned from my father these dishes, lentil soup, chickpea Mm. soup, pastulia with green beans uh, and tomato, Mm-hmm. All these these dishes that he would make. Mm-hmm. Um, and he even taught my mother to make uh, stuffed grape leaves, which is how I now know. And wow. I've been cooking since I was five. I mean, I have this memory of standing at the stove when I'm five years old on a step stool, mm-hmm. stirring a pot. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and I don't remember an adult being in the kitchen with me. Yeah, <laughs> you were, you were, yeah, I, I have this little theory I've developed over, over 150 episodes now. I think there's people who love to cook and there's people who don't. And some don't find out or don't discover that they do until later in life. But I think if you're one of the people who love to cook, nobody can keep you away from the kitchen. And if you're someone who doesn't, you just have to find a way to do things simply because you're probably not going to start loving to. Yeah, I think that, you know, there are some people who might develop that, as mm-hmm. you say. But yeah, I think that for me, the kitchen is so creative. Mm, I agree. Yes. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, and also, it's such a tie. I obviously was hungering for ties to my yeah. heritage. Yep. And my father did speak Ladino. Mm. I learned to speak Castilian, Castellano, the modern Spanish, and we would mm. argue about words. And actually, one of my um, pandemic projects was I took Ladino classes online. Wow. Because I really just felt like it was such a gap in my life to not wow. really know that language. Mm. Um, and I was not a chef all along. I cooked my whole life. I've taught cooking classes like at synagogues and stuff. Mm. But I was first in public relations, and then I had a career as a documentary writer and producer. Oh, wow. Did you focus on food? I'm sorry? Did you focus on food? As, Not as at document- all. No. Not at all. <laughs> no, mem- no, films about the environment and Holocaust and things like wow. that. And I also, wow. but in between, for a couple years, I had worked with um, Joan Nathan as an assistant when I first moved to DC mm-hmm. in uh, I in the early 90s, I guess around 93, 94. Mm-hmm. And um it, it awoke something in me. Hmm. And the and this whole idea of food and the connections to history and culture started coming into focus. So I started to be drawn to learning more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And that was where I started educating myself, even as I was working in other fields. Hmm. And then in 2012, I, I was running the Jewish Film Festival here in D.C., and I was asked to start something called the Jewish Food Experience. And that was it. That wow. was my total transformation of my life to food. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and all of a sudden, it was like, this was in me. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, so is it fairly recent? Is it since you made that switch that you kind of started to think back to this sopa de ajo recipe and thought, oh, maybe this is not something I just liked, but maybe this is something that came from, you know, you mentioned like from the Inquisition, like how did that, how did that come together for you? Yes. Well, actually that is what happened. The more I learned, especially from 2012 onwards, when I really made an effort 
to poke around and, and, and teach myself. And I said, oh, gosh, garlic, the Jews, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in Spain, the Sephardim, and my father's incredible love of garlic mm-hmm. and some other foods that are very much tied to um, the Jews of Spain, including like sponge cake, which hmm. is de España is what it was called, hmm. bread of Spain. And these are things that also got exported. When the Jews left Iberia, there's this huge influence of Sephardic food that spread. So if you, you know, it went into, and it's a whole other discussion, but it went into the Ottoman Empire, of course, it married with Ottoman cuisine beautifully, Mm. you know, that there was just a great marriage there. It Mm. also went to the New World. And like mm-hmm. one of the places it went was Mexico, yeah. you, know, you know, naturally. So you have something like sopapillas that are so identified as being Mexican. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, it looks like most likely they came from bumuelos, which is the fried dough that Jews make and put either powdered sugar or honey drizzled mm-hmm. on, especially at Hanukkah when we eat foods that are associated with oil. Uh-huh. And yeah. And so, um, and another one, it, I, I'm still digging at it. Mm. I haven't quite found evidence yet, mm. but I do believe this garlic soup mm. is another example. Mm. And the fact that it is clear tells me that it's an older tradition mm. before tomatoes mm-hmm. came to Spain and England, which was with the explorers, the conquistadores in Spain. Mm-hmm. And it came in the 1520s, the tomato. I see. Um, I and, see. Yeah. So that was added later because also the Spanish did not take to the tomato. Um, oh, the Christian Spanish, the people who took to the tomato were Sephardic Jews. And they were actually conversos who were left there, secret Jews who were left at that point. And as they left Spain and wandered eastward, especially again to the Ottoman Empire and to Italy, they brought the tomato. Interesting. So you would then suspect that mm-hmm. um, the soup came from um, Spain to yes. Mexico, but before the 16th century. Yes. And would that be? Or, or, Early, I would say before the 17th century, because it wasn't wide. The tomato wasn't widely ad- adopted. I see. And so, would um, would Jews have been traveling at that time simply yeah. as explorers, or would they have been traveling in response to, um, like Sarah was mentioning earlier, this kind of like long lead up to? Um, well, I suppose that would have been right during the peak of yes. the Inquisition. Yeah. Both. Yes. Yeah. Both. And especially secret Jews. Um, and I bet you had, um, you know, there's the story about how there were Jews that were on board, uh, Columbus's ships Mm. and yes, there were. Mm. And did he know? Uh, probably there's also suspicions that he was himself Mm. a Sephardic Jew, at least part of his family and no one, you know, I don't know. We've never, Mm. I don't think it's been conclusively decided. But the thing that has happened is that Sephardic food has had this big influence. I said the Bumuelos became Sopapillas. Well, if you look in in other countries in Latin and South America, you have Bumuelos with an N. Mm. And it's the same thing. It's the fried Mm. dough. 
You yeah. Know? And right. It's a very, um, it's a very permeable membrane, right? Like yeah. these, um, mm-hmm. these cultures, like uh, Sephardic cuisine influenced uh, other cuisines, other cuisines influenced mm-hmm. Sephardic cuisines and around and around and around we go. Exactly. That's why it's so hard to sometimes tease things out, but mm. it's also so fascinating. Right. I mean, I just love it because, you know, nothing has to always be the same. Mm. Who I never cook. You know, my son jokes with me that he never knows if he's going to eat the same dish. <laughs> my family. <laughs> yeah, my family jokes <laughs> with right? me as well. Like, oh, this is delicious, mom. Did you use a recipe? Because they know the answer <laughs> is always no. And, oh. um, yeah. And Sarah, you have found the same with music that just, there's just this very like permeable, um, free exchange of, like you said, melodies, um, words, ideas, experiences. And also, um, rhythms, especially mm. rhythms, um, as the Jews were exiled and went more East, they picked up, especially Turkish and Arabic, uh, influences, in melody and in uh, rhythm. So a lot of our rhythms sound, you know, particularly um, Arabic and um, the instrumentation, there was no such thing as, you know, a typical instrument that would be used beyond, uh, let's say a voice and a hand drum. People would pick up the instruments that were used locally in, in wherever they, whatever region they ended up. So if, uh, if, the neighbors used ouds, then the Jews in that and the Jews in that community would use an oud. If they used a bazooki, they would use a bazooki. I mean, it, it just um, they would pick up whatever was was around them. It's amazing. It's so amazing. you know that is so fascinating to me, Sarah, too, because that is exactly what happens with food. Mm. Like whatever was grown, whatever spices, whatever was native to that place, right. people would pick up and incorporate. And I just I love that that was mm, yeah music. yeah mm. it's like you guys found the two universal languages and merged them <laughs> precisely what Samora is about <laughs> so some people would say like math is the third you'd have to <laughs> incorporate mm. that in somehow <laughs> not no <laughs> <laughs> well I have um I have so I know we're over our hour but would you indulge me with maybe just two more questions would that be okay Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, um, Susan, just one, I, I like it. It doesn't always happen because as you know, this is not, this is, this is a podcast, a little bit about food, but a lot about people. So, but when I can, I like to give, um, I like to learn and share a few cooking tips. So you said something really, um, interesting in the recipe. You said people are afraid of using so much garlic because they don't realize how mellow, sweet, and flavorful so much garlic is when it's prepared as described in the recipe. So tell us about that. Um, how can people prepare garlic and how will they prepare it in this recipe so that it becomes mellow, sweet, and flavorful, which sounds like a pretty amazing combination. Oh, it is. It's a, a shock. You know what? It all has to do with how you cook garlic. Mm. In this recipe, you cook first the leeks and then add the garlic, both mm. on medium low. So you're cooking them low and slow. Mm. Mm. And you're just softening the garlic and the leeks. You're not letting them brown. As soon mm. as you let them brown, you can get bitterness. Mm. Yes, it's so true. I have 
bittered of many a garlic in my life. <laughs> I like that. It's a, it's a bird now. Bittered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, while I have you on this tip recipe, what, how do you, um, so again, for people listening who are going to make this recipe, how do you prefer to clean your leeks? Because it can really be a pain. Yeah. I actually, in the recipe I used to describe, just mm. for me, I take off the one or two outer leaves that are tough. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I'll cut off just the very darkest green because mm-hmm. I, I use a lot of the leaf. You know, it's not true that you can't use the dark green part. Mm-hmm. Um, you just take off the toughest. Anyway, I, I slice it all up into the way that I'm going to be using it. So mm-hmm. I'm slicing it into rings that are about a quarter inch thick. Mm-hmm. I, and this is unwashed unless there's like sand on the outside mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the stock. Mm-hmm. I throw it all into a strainer mm-hmm. and I rinse it under cool water. Okay. Now, if that it seems like the leak's particularly dirty, mm-hmm. I'll soak them in a dish, a bowl of water mm-hmm. that's deep. And um, then I'll just kind of move the leaks around with my fingers, both mm-hmm. under the water and in the bowl. Then if okay. they're in the bowl, I stop, I let the dirt settle, pull it out, rinse them a lot, and that's it. I, otherwise, yeah, cleaning leaks has put off many people. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be a pain, but I, I think those are great tips. Thank you. Thank you very much. So yeah. so for my last question, besides you guys sharing all of your information, I um, I hesitate to ask this, and you're probably like going to roll your eyes, but and it's going to be harder for you, Sarah, because these songs, I think, are probably like your children. <laughs> so, um, but if you, I'm not even going to say favorite. I don't like to pick favorites. I can't ever do that. But if you had to pick a song that is particularly meaningful to you or or you would just really like people who are listening to to go straight to that song and play it first. Hopefully they'll listen to the whole album. Um, Susan, again, I'll start with you because Sarah's Sarah's going to have a harder time, <laughs> I think. Um, sure. What would that song be? Tell us a little bit about it and why it's so um, why you would choose it for my for my listeners to listen to first. An easy answer, though. Mm. What is it? I have an easy answer. All of them? You're going to say all of them. (laughs) No, 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 no. Okay, so it might not be my favorite song musically, but Mm -hmm. it's my, um, for me, it encapsulates what Savor is all about. So Mm -hmm. I can offer that up. Is it going to be the one with your daughters? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Another reason. It actually has, um, uh, that's only half of the reason. Um, Okay. Because, you know, Savor really is the connection between the music and the food. So the music mm-hmm. part um, is, um, I'll say, is this is the one contemporary song by Flori Jagoda. And I just, mm-hmm. she was such an important part of my musical development. Mm-hmm. Latino. So I love being able to honor her by including one of her songs. Um, but so much of Savor, as we've been speaking about, is creating community. And it's also just show that anybody can cook. You can be six years old, Mm. 96 years old, everybody, all ages, people of every background. Um, And, you know, cooking is supposed to be joyful. And Mm. so much of Sephardic culture is about creating this joy and this love of, you know, of, of our, of our culture at large. And Mm. so um, this song 
It's literally, it's called Chico Ian Nico. It's, um, Flory wrote it for her grandson, little Ian, um, mm. it's about him having fun in the kitchen. He's a little boy and he's throwing flour all around as, as he makes, um, brekas. Mm. She talks about the butter and the flour and little Ian in the kitchen. And I just love that image of the two generations or well, really three generations, the yeah. grandma. The the grandson um, uh, being in the kitchen together, that intergenerational um, uh, interplay is so beautiful. And so, of course, I wanted to have my own daughters singing with me. And to match the song, um, Susan paired the song with another mother-daughter grouping, called Benditas Manos. They are in LA and it's a mother daughter. The mother is 96 years old. Wow. Uh, Hey Israel in, in the video demo that she, um, that they made of her making the brick as you just see her, her hand or the, her hands moving so quickly, making, um, the crimps around the brick is just magnificent. And so Mm. to a 96 year old woman, as you literally hear my six year old, so 90 years apart, singing the Incredible. song simultaneously. For me, that's what Sephora is is all about. Incredible. And she's making those barricas with her daughter, who's yeah. in her 60s. This is amazing. This is amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And again, uh, you know, when it comes to the the intersection, the similarities between what music and what food can do, like I have no musical talent, none whatsoever. But like that six-year-old in the kitchen, I can still enjoy and appreciate and find joy and comfort and pleasure in music, which I think, Sarah, you know, you have done, like, it's like you've gifted us with this music. And I can, like I said, even though I have no musical talent, and I don't speak Ladino and anything like that, I can still enjoy and appreciate what you have done. I think it's just another amazing thing about food and music is they're both accessible at any point at the expert point to the Mm -hmm. basic point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, um, one of the things that's really lovely about the recipes that go with the different songs, many of them are very doable. Mm, that's a great Most point. Most of them are very achievable. And we have these cooking videos that mm. go along with them exactly right. for that reason, because we want people to be able to make these recipes, to incorporate them into their lives, to feed their families and friends. That's really important to us. That's incredible. Yeah, that's a great point. This is such a um, a multimedia experience that is so, yeah, it's informative and it really does gather everyone in to your community. That's that's awesome. Well, that's um, why we call it a Sephardic music and food experience. experience. <laughs> I love it. People to experience it. Hands <laughs> on, ears on. <laughs> mm, that's such a good point. That that's such a good point. Susan, how about you for a song? Did you think of one? Well, one was Chico and Nico. Uh, okay, okay. I have another one. The other one I thought of is um, Siete Modos de Guisar la Berenjena. Mm. That's seven ways to prepare the eggplant, which is actually, I forget how many ways this song actually has, Sarah, 32. Yeah. There's a version with over 30. I yeah. read that. That's incredible. And so what I love about that is it is like, I love the way that the recipe takes, I mean, the song takes this one ingredient and shows you its incredible diversity. Amazing. 
amazing. What a celebration of food and creation and nature. Yeah. Ladies, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I've learned so much. I've enjoyed it. I'm smiling ear to ear right now. Um, and just, I mean, what a great time to to savor <laughs> the <laughs> gifts of food and music and to just focus on those, you know, what um and culture and community and family mm-hmm. and religion um celebrations, all of it. Thank you so, so much for this. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, thank you so much. As we'd say, one of the ways of saying thank you in Ladino, merci mucho. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, thank you. So please tell everyone how to um, how to immerse themselves in this experience. Well, the easiest way is just to go to our website, Savor Experience, all one word, SavorExperience.com. And you can learn um, all about our programs. We offer programs for communities of all sizes, and we also lead experiential trips. So Last spring, we led a food and music trip from Athens to Istanbul, and we're leading another one this coming spring um, in May, the end of May, from Rome to Sevilla. This is incredible. And do you sing? Do people get to hear you sing? There is singing. There is cooking. We do demos. Um, concerts, we we do it all. And, and really the trip is all through this uh, Sephardic music and food and culture lens. This is incredible. And one of the things that people can do is sign up for the newsletter, which doesn't, it's not like we're going to bombard you right. um, with emails, but if you want to keep up with where we're going, what our trips are, all of everything about Savor, mm-hmm. sign up for the newsletter. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, I will have links to all of those in the show notes as always. I know a lot of people are going to head over there and look at it. Um, I I would love to talk to you for hours and hours more, but I want to thank you again for the time that you did share with us today. Um, this was just a great conversation. I've enjoyed it so much and I'm so impressed with what you've done and thankful that you've done it um, to just teach us all so much. Thank you so much, Becky. It's absolutely my pleasure. Y'all have a great afternoon. Have a good time. What time is it in Hawaii, Sarah? Now it's 747 in the morning. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, 630 was an early wake up call for vacation. So thank you for that also. We'll talk soon, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello again. Thank you so much for listening into the end. Um, you can find contact information for Sarah and Susan and the Savoir experience right there in the show notes. You can also find a link to Susan's delicious and very healthy sopa de ajo recipe. As always, I am so grateful to you as listeners for your time and interest. And as always, there is just one thing you can do that will really help out the storied recipe. You can leave a five-star review right there um, in your podcast player. If you'd like to follow along, I would really encourage you to subscribe to the Storied Recipe newsletter. You can also do that um, now that we are deep into the school year again, already two weeks in. Um, I'm going to be releasing those um, volumes of the newsletter every Friday morning. And that's just a great way to stay in touch with um, a little bit about what's going on personally. Um, You have the opportunity to give some guidance into where the storied recipe might be going. And you will definitely never miss an episode or a recipe when you are subscribed to that newsletter. I think that's it, my friends. I hope you have a great week.